This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast with Robert Vore and Steve Austin. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore. I'm one of your hosts, and I am here, as always, with my co-host, Baxter Jones. Baxter, how are you doing today? (laughs) So, (laughs) that's funny. Uh... I forget about it. I, there are days I forget about it. Today was one of those days. I was like, what? Who's he? Oh, he's talking about me. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, here I am. Baxter Jones. That's right. Happy <laughs> Monday. Yeah, happy Monday. Happy for Monday. That's mm, true. Mm-hmm. I think at this point, everybody knows that we record the intros either on the Thursday or the Friday ahead of time. So I never know if we should like pretend like it's Monday, like you're about to say, oh, how are you doing? And I don't know if I should be like, oh, I'm fired up for the week or if I should just, we should just roll with it. <laughs> it's like, actually Friday. It's over, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, either way, I'm good. How are you kind, sir? I'll just roll with it. Since it's Friday, uh, I'm getting ready to go out of town. My wife runs a ministry, and a a church invited her to speak at their missions conference on all weekend. So she'll speak once tonight, and then on Saturday, and then on Sunday. So really excited to watch her do that. It's pretty cool. And so yeah, pretty pretty proud of her. So it'll be cool. Heck yeah. Yeah. It's what's new with you? Anything Mm. new and exciting in the world of Baxter Jones? I I have not started a new website or a new project this week. I have just sort of. Uh, it's a rare you know, occurrence. It's a rare occurrence. I haven't written a book this week. I'm just sort of chilling. How sort of many chilling. domains do you own? Let's not talk about it. <laughs> okay. I'm I mean, curious because I was in. It's redonk. The other day, I was in kind of the backside of your websites, actually trying to uh, look at some stuff with you, and it just looked like there were so many domains that were there are. attached to various things. So there are, yeah, there are. I mean, I when you figure I've got the self care challenge, the writing challenge, I am steveaustin.com, the blog, I am steveaustin.net, the business ish stuff. That's four yeah and there's gosh three or four domains tied to each one of those i bet there's i bet i probably own close to 30 domains for four websites that is that's dumb uh, that's outstanding i think i have let's see i have robert-board.com which is fine uh i own cxmhpodcast.com which we use for this obviously uh Mm -hmm. i have ilovejesusbutt.com which we can talk about here in a second uh, and then I actually have one, well, kind of have one more. I, I run a website for uh, a ministry, that, uh, but I don't really own that domain. I guess they do. I just kind of manage it. So I actually did get an email the other day for, uh, it was from somebody, and it was letting me know that just normal com was going to be up for sale soon. Mm. Did we talk about this yet? Anyway, no. it was an email, which 
back when I started my website, obviously I looked at, that was my first choice, but somebody owned it, but there wasn't even anything on it. And so this email <laughs> popped up and I thought, oh, great, I can get that one. It's way easier. I don't have to say, you know, Robert Dashvor or anything sure. like that. Uh, and it was like, hey, we wanted to let you know you might be interested in this domain. Uh, it'll be, and I think it was like $115 or something. And I was like, mm, hard pass. Jeez Louise. I know. Too much for me, but. Too much. Too much. I wondered why you were Robert Dashboard, but now I see it's because it wasn't available. Yeah, nope. All right. Well, anyway, speaking of I love Jesus, com, that is the website that'll take you to all the information about our book. It is now released on Amazon, so you can get that. Uh, we think it's a, an outstanding resource for you to read, uh, embracing the tension between faith and mental health, so you can read a little bit about it there, and then there's a you know a link at the bottom that'll take you directly to the Amazon page. But it's pretty cheap; I think it's like four or five bucks, which is a great deal. So go get that. Leave us a review of that on Amazon would be great. Let us know your thoughts. You can email us or reach out to us about that. What else? We need to talk about email subscriptions to the podcast so that you never miss another thing. Yes, if you want episodes of the podcast delivered right to your email. Uh, we've kind of implemented this new feature. So if you go to cxmhpodcast.com, uh, up on the menu there, there's a, a thing that says listen, and you can click subscribe via email, or there's a button right there on the homepage. And that will take you actually to a, I'm doing it right now as I speak, it will take you to a place where you can enter your email and it will email you every time that we put out a new episode which is typically Mondays but sometimes we do bonus ones or things like that so it will email you every time so if you don't have uh, an app like I use you know the iTunes app that downloads them automatically if you don't have one of those and you've been listening online or something like that uh, that might be a, a convenient way to get them delivered right to you without you having to take the extra step of going to find them so uh, that's that's a cool new thing that we've we've we're trying out so let us know how it works if if you do that so one other thing, in case you all have forgotten, we have a free weekly newsletter. So if you are listening to this show, you should totally sign up for the email newsletter. It's free. It doesn't cost you a thing. And you get a little freebie, which is a daily self-care checklist. You can print it out. It's PDF. You can print it out. You can put it wherever you're going to see it regularly, on your bathroom mirror, on your desk, on your locker, Whatever you want to do, um, print it out, a little self-care checklist to make sure that you are taking care of yourself every day. So, um, yeah, yeah, you can subscribe for the email newsletter um, right there on the website as well. So, yeah, yeah you should do that. Yeah, and that, cool that newsletter, it. you will get, uh, as we do more and more different type things, you know, live events or, uh, you know, like releasing this book when uh, we, we kind of broke that news in the newsletter first. So you'll get, you'll be on the front end of learning about things like that, as well as there's some content in there that doesn't go anywhere else. So, you know, you and I have written things that maybe it's not quite long enough for a blog or something like that, or it was designed specifically for that audience. So you'll get content from us that doesn't go anywhere else in that newsletter. So it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty good deal. That's only forty nine ninety nine a month to sign up for that newsletter. So <laughs> sure. it's really, you're, you're coming through in the positive on that. 
whatever. Speaking of things that cost money, the other thing you can do is go to patreon.com slash CXMH and yeah. send us a dollar. <laughs> yes, definitely support us there uh, as well as dropping us a review, recommending us to our friend, to your friends. Our friends already know about it. Uh, tweeting about us, Facebooking about us, Instagramming about us, Snapchatting about us if you're into that kind of thing. If you want to buy a plane and fly it across the sky at the beach with one of those banners behind it. You can do that too. Ooh, skywriting. Skywriting. Sky oh if somebody my listen, gosh. this is I'm 100% serious. If somebody pays for a plane to skywrite cxmhpodcast.com somewhere where I can see it, but don't tell me about it. I just wanted to encounter it in my daily life. Catch oh. me off guard. I'm not sure what the reward will be, but that would be outstanding. This episode is great. Uh, I really enjoyed it. We brought on Dr. Janice Whitlock, who is so knowledgeable, so smart, but communicates things in a very relatable, easy-to-understand way, and, and I really enjoyed it. And we are talking about, in this episode, non-suicidal self-injury, uh, which is kind of the technical term, but a lot of us you know, know it by self-harm or uh, things like cutting or uh, things like that. So we talk about that in this episode I think it was great. I thought it was fantastic, too. So educational. Um, you will hear I ask some questions uh, from just a place of ignorance because that's sort of where I live. Um, but, yeah, I think some questions that probably a lot of people would ask, too. And uh, she was very gracious with her Absolutely. explanation and education. So it's a great episode. We'll get to it. Here's our episode with Dr. Janice Whitlock. All right, welcome back to the show. Today we are so excited to have another fantastic guest. Uh, my co-host Steve is here as well. Steve, how are you doing today? What is this, and how did you get my number? <laughs> uh, I'm just Skyping random people to, to <laughs> pretend like they're the co-host of a show. We Happy are, Monday! There you go. We are excited to be joined by Dr. Janice Whitlock today. Dr. Whitlock is a research scientist in the, I'm totally going to mess this up, but Bronfenbrenner? Yeah, that's good. That, hey, there we go. Center for <laughs> Translational Research. Uh, she's also the director of the Cornell Research Program on Self-Injury and Recovery, as well as the author of publications on non-suicidal self-injury in adolescence and young adulthood, social media and mental health, and in youth connectedness to schools and communities. She has a doctorate in developmental psychology from Cornell, a master's of public health from UNC Chapel Hill, and a BA from UC Berkeley, as well as a, a bunch of other things here on your bio. Dr. Whitlock, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. We are so glad to have you on the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself, other than all the fancy things that are on the, the bio there I just read. Oh, I was listening to it. It's always humbling to hear somebody read your bio. You're like, wow, I've done a lot of stuff. It's just, uh, you know, you accrue life and you you use it hopefully to do good things for other people in the world and, and then it all adds up. So um, I started this program purely out of um, fascination with what I was encountering in my personal life through friends and family and it's definitely been an interesting journey, the, the stuff on research, uh, I mean the stuff on self-injury. And um, I guess the only other thing worth, worth mentioning is I really didn't start out my professional life thinking I'd be a researcher at all. I thought I would be uh, a change agent and I work, would work on the front line with youth and families, which I did for about 12 years. And it was sort of through the twists and turns and 
of life that I ended up doing research and I really love that intersection of both research and practice and how, do we, how is it that we can generate knowledge and make knowledge and apply it in ways that makes life better for people. So how did you get interested in the research of self-injury in particular? Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it really was kind of odd because I had come out and finished my doctorate on connectedness. I was looking at, in particular, how do schools and communities create contexts that help people not just, you know, survive or not do the bad things we know makes life hard, but how is it that it can really help them thrive? And how can we really support a, a full thriving development? And um, I was thinking I would continue doing a lot more work in that in that area. And uh, there was a period toward the end of 2000 and it was 2003, in which I started to encounter people in my own life. So there were two families in particular with two kids who I had, in one case, known since she was two. And um, they were now teenagers, and they were self-injuring. And I was fascinated by it because I had worked on the front line with a, a lot of kids who had a lot of vulnerabilities and high-risk behaviors for quite a while and hadn't really encountered that. It really wasn't the part part of the social and emotional landscape or behavioral landscape of, of my growing up in the 70s and 80s. And I was a foster uh, parent to a young woman who had all sorts of issues, but not that uh, in the 80s and 90s. And so I just got curious and I started looking at like the literature, which is what most academics do. We go find out what, what what's known, who's written about, who's written what, and what do we know about it. And there was really very little. So then I went to the people I know who work with kids and young adults, and um, you know those are people be, be pediatricians and school nurses and counselors and teachers and just anybody I could find that I knew worked with kids day to day and said, are you seeing this? And every single one of them said, oh yeah, lots. So the gap between what was known and um, what was available in terms of resources for people who were working directly with young people is just striking, like more striking than anything I've ever seen. So that's day, and I thought well, we'll do a we'll do a small program on the side, research program like one study, you know, just to get a sense of what this is and how often it's happening and just basic questions, uh, and that that was oh a long time ago. It was almost fifteen years ago. <laughs> so the need for information just kept snowballing, and I remember walking into an interview at one point with a young woman when we were just we were just starting the process, and I was answering basic questions for myself around around it, the who, what, where, when, and why. And I, I was sitting there listening to her say she'd never really shared much of this with anybody, and I thought, I don't know why me, I don't know why now, but I'm the right person in the right place at the right time to do this work, and I'm going to do it. Hmm. So it's been, you know, I'll just add real quickly that the, the nice thing is that it's also, it's a great place to explore some of the issues I'm I was always interested in, which is how is it that people can go through really dark nights of the soul or really hard parts of life and not just survive it, but um, become better humans, become wiser humans, yeah. have more perspective. And this is that was what I was getting ready to do before this this process started, this whole research um, process started, and I have been able to do that very well with self injury as a focal point. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I actually took a online seminar on non-suicidal self-injury a few months back that you ran, uh, which oh, is yeah. how which is how we connected. I reached out to you uh, because I actually searched back through when I knew we wanted to do this episode. I searched back through my emails and figured out who it was that had done that seminar, and 
uh, found your name. So I thought it was really beneficial. So just to tell you a little bit about kind of the show that, that we do here, it's a podcast at the intersection of Christianity and mental health. And so we have a good cross-section of our audience works in a church setting, you know, pastors, youth pastors, people who run ministries, things like that. And a good uh, section of them are just folks who are involved in churches or who uh, maybe were but aren't now, but who are going through some mental health things or people who just want to know more about it. And so as far as this episode, I would love to just get kind of a, a, I guess, a better understanding of what is non-suicidal self-injury, why, like, what are some of the causes, what's happening, what are some best ways that we can help, you know, if, say, a youth pastor is listening, what are ways for them to be on the lookout or how to intervene, things like that. So I guess just to start with, what is non-suicidal self-injury? That's a term that most people are probably going to be unfamiliar with. Yep. Um, it is defined as the deliberate, direct, uh, self-inflicted destruction of body tissue for purposes that are not socially sanctioned and without suicidal intent. So basically, it is uh, anything that uh, somebody would do with conscious awareness of doing it for the purposes of, of hurting the, the surface of their body, for the most part, um, that isn't about tattooing or piercing. It's not about an aesthetic that's that is accepted in some social groups, subgroups, and it's not that it has no suicidal intent. It's it's pretty much undertaken, well, by definition, and uh, you know when you start talking to people who use this, it's really people use it to feel better, especially to feel emotionally better. Sure, and the most common expressions of this we would say are you know, cutting, quote unquote, or, you know, hair pulling, skin picking, things like that? Um, I'd say the most common, you know, the most common we find are either cutting or self-scratching, but we're not talking about small, you know, pretty deep scratches that can leave deep marks or blood. Um, Those are the most common forms. And then the two other things you mentioned are in there. They're just not uh, skin picking and, um, and hair pulling is not, they're not some of the most common types, but they definitely happen. You might also have burning, um, what's called embedding, people who put staples or things underneath the skin. Um, so, you know, one of the things that comes up fairly often but has a pretty strong gender component is uh, punching objects or oneself to the point of bruising or bleeding. And um, that's usually, that, and that's with conscious intent. And it's fascinating because, as you might expect, that happens more among males than females. But... Uh, in this case, they're very aware that what what they want out of the the punch or the fight or or whatever it is the the self punch or the punching of an object is to hurt. Like that's the point. They they know it, but of course, to an onlooker, that's not going to be usually very visible. They're only going to see that external focused aggression. But that's than you'd expect. And it, there, there is a gender effect in the sense that there are more males that do that than females, but there's plenty of young women who do that too. This is fascinating to me. And I want to make sure I heard you right a couple of minutes ago that their goal is to feel better. Is that right? Right. Yep. That's the goal. I know it seems kind of... Oh, yeah. And, and I'm speaking out of total ignorance here. Robert, Robert is the the smart one of the two of us. So I I am here just as the experience guy, as the story guy, but I don't know anything really about non-suicidal self-harm. I attempted suicide several years ago, but I was never a self-harm guy. I, 
I just, when I decided it was time, it was time and I was, you know, I was going for it. Um, so it, it just, it's fascinating to me that someone would think that cutting, for instance, would somehow make them feel better. What is it? it is it letting the pressure off? How does, what does that look like in a, in a real scenario, real life scenario for somebody? Yeah. And that's like, you know, it's a $64 million question always like, why? Why does this work? How is it that hurting yourself can actually make you feel better? And the answer is uh, fascinating, actually. So on the surface, if you ask people about that, pretty much always, there's there's a variety of reasons people will give, and and they tend to fall in two general big categories. One is um, at what we call affective regulation, which is just a fancy way of saying emotion regulation. For some reason, and I'll, I'll get to that in just a second, that the pro the, the pain, the physical pain, the ability to take an emotionally amorphous experience like rage or, or grief or loss or just, you know, yucky bad feeling and concentrate it into a place on the body and, in, and make it physical is really, really powerful. And there's, um, there's symbolic reasons for that and there are neurological reasons for that and I'll come back, come back to that in a second. So that's one big, um, bucket of things it's just feelings and and there tend to be either people will say either I have all this all this big emotion that I can't tolerate and and it, I need to do something with it and that's an expression of it or they have no emotion at all if they're completely dissociated and dissociation is a little bit like um I mean most of us have had moments of emotional numbness and uh but, but dissociation is really terrifying people can really feel like they're not they have no connection to, to bodily life at all, and it feels very scary. And they will say that when they when they injure, there is an experience of reintegration where they actually feel embodied again, and it's very calming. It's like a relief. Like, oh, yeah, I'm real. <laughs> Look, I'm bleeding. I can feel it. I'm real. So that's one bucket. The other big bucket is social, um, so that people will say, and this is less common, but it shows up um, sometimes, especially at the beginning. They'll say that there's it's a, it's a form of social communication. So one of the one of the primary reasons people self-injure often is out of a sense of disconnection. It's often a disconnection to self, but also a disconnection to to an other or a set of others or the world. And there is some way in which this speaks the pain in a way that they kind of hope consciously or unconsciously will be noticed and remedied. Hmm. So that's like, okay, so that's what people will say. And there's other things that go in there, but that's, that's what usually the dominant thing is this first bucket that affect emotion regulation. Now, why, why would it feel better? Why would that help? There's two primary reasons that come out. Um, one is symbolic and agentic. I mean, it makes sense if you think about, people who have huge amounts of pain or radicals of dissociation, it's emotional, it's unfocused, they can't figure out how to feel better, they can't figure out how to calm down, they just know that they hate it and they want out of it. There's something really deeply satisfying for a lot of people of making that physical, of focusing on one spot on the body or you know, a patch of the body and concentrating all that amorphous, ephemeral emotional pain into something very concretely physical and they're taking total control of all of it right so they've got they've got the implement they're making the mark it's concentrated in one place they feel the pain they they endure the pain and then what happens you guys after after you after you have a physical injury what happens over the next few days 
I guess you start, I mean, you would start to heal. You would, right. yes. you know. Yeah, so you watch it, you, you, you watch it heal. So imagine if you're feeling really emotionally wounded and scarred and you don't know what to do about it and you don't know if it'll ever, if it'll ever get better. There's something really symbolically powerful about focusing it and watching it heal. Hmm. So there, that's pretty cool and, and understandable. But then if you add to the, the neurological explanation, which is harder to describe over the phone, because um, I usually have these wild hand gesticulations that help you show, <laughs> let me explain it. But it goes something like this. And we have, we have a um, uh, information brief on our website that's called How to, How to Self-Injury Help Feelings, something along those lines by Joe Franklin that I will point people to for a much crisper explanation. But basically, in a nutshell, the neurological research suggests um, pretty persuasively that there, the, the parts of the brain, the neurological networks in the brain that govern emotion perception. So if you guys, if we were all looking at each other, this part of my, the segments of my brain would be telling me that what you're thinking about me, I would be, or it would tell me what it thinks you're thinking about me. And it would be sort of giving me, a, that would be translated into emotion. That very same neurological network is also the, the neurological network um, that is telling me when I hold a bottle of cold water, which I have in my hand, that it's cold, that it's physically cool, but not too cold. I don't have to drop in. It's not too hot. So the fact that those there's overlap between those neurological networks means that if I was um, somebody who has uses this, this connection between these systems to, to help myself regulate, if I was getting a lot of feedback from you of, that made me feel like I was being rejected, it, it, I could injure myself and I would, that the same brain parts that are telling me that, that I'm being rejected and that I'm hurt would perceive the physical pain as a big ouch. And on the backside of that pain, as the, pain, the physical pain starts to wear off, would basically functionally bring down my emotional pain with it because it's exactly the same neural networks. Does that make any sense? Yeah, so the, the, if I understand what you're saying correctly, the parts of our brain that process emotional pain are very connected to the parts that process physical pain. And so when your body kind of reacts to physical pain to make it feel better, it impacts the, the emotional pain side of things? Exactly. So there's, it's basically coupling of an emotional pain that I, can't, I don't know what to do about with a physical pain that I know is going to peak and then it's going to start to drop down. And as it starts to drop off, it's bringing the emotional pain down with it. Hmm. It's, it's a really clever, and it doesn't work that way for everybody, but the reality is it's a, it's a neurological system that every, all of us have. It's universal. So there's been some really fascinating studies. For example, if somebody's holding a warm cup of coffee or a warm cup of anything while they meet somebody new, they're more likely to describe that person as warm, emotionally warm. They have no idea that the reason they're doing that is because they're getting joint information from the same neurological network, right? Mm, yeah. But cross of the the pain, the physical, the physical perception that's crossing over into an emotion interpretation. No, yeah. that makes so much sense. I always like people better when I'm holding a warm cup of coffee. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Technically. <gasps> There's been some interesting studies that show, and I am not endorsing Tylenol at all, but it's fascinating that Tylenol is one of the pain medications that works on those neurological systems. Ibuprofen, for example, is not. It's, a, it's an anti-inflammatory, but, but um, 
Tylenol works on the ACC AI, which are the two parts of the brain that, that where this is all going on. And they've been able to, scientists have been able to show that, you know, if you're, if you can wait for the half hour, 45 minutes it takes the Tylenol to, to um, take effect, you can, it'll help soothe emotional pain perception too. It's not just physical pain because it's working on the same part of the brain. Wow. So in essence, people who injure have discovered this link and they've discovered how to manipulate that, that, those, that overlap in a way that will help them move from a state of very high agitation or dissociation into a state of calm very, very quickly. And it's uh, very effective. It's very fast. It's much easier than learning how to, you know, calm yourself down and go for a walk or meditate or breathe or all those things that ultimately people typically tend to or exercise tend to use to soothe emotional pain. This is fast and quick and easy. And be there, it therefore becomes very easy to understand why it becomes um, an entrenched behavior that is like a quick go-to. Right. Okay, so what I just heard in, in a lot of that is that, because I think this is one of the, when I, when I think about things that people look at and they just say, I, have, I don't understand this at all. This yeah. is one of the things that falls pretty firmly in that category based on most of my experiences. But what I just, you know, what we just kind of heard there was that essentially it's because it works. Now, I say that tentatively because obviously there are negatives and downsides to where we wouldn't say, hey, this is a great way of dealing with your right. emotional pain, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. You know, I know when Joe um, presented this at a conference I was at, it was 2012, um, I think there was a collective like, oh, in the audience, like we are all like, oh, we get it. It just makes so much sense. It's fast, it's easy, and it's hard to walk away from if you've, you've come up with a quick and easy way to, to basically, you know, soothe your hurt feelings. Right. Um, so it gave me at least a lot of, not that I didn't have compassion, but it gave me much greater understanding. And it's not a unique system. Like all of us have this. The thing that, um, the thing that also, when people, when I run across people who injured, I typically assume a couple of things. I assume that these are often people who have a lot of emotion perception. So they're often people who can pick up emotion both in themselves and in other people pretty acutely. And they also tend to, and neurological studies have shown this pretty persuasively too, they also tend to uh, feel that emotion in subjectively big ways in their body, like more than I would as a fairly... Uh, probably middle of the range processor that way. but So they're way perceptive and they take it in and they feel it in a really big way. And the offset, like that, that down the backside of the pain, emotional pain process we were just talking about, they perceive that that, that is really big too. So everything is, is big. The emotions are, the, the perception's big, the emotional feeling is big, the emotional offset if they injure is big. And I always try to tell them and people who work with them and, and parents, like, this is a gift. It's not a, a bad thing. Way better to have more emotion perception than less. But um, it can be tricky to learn how to work it if you don't, if you know, if you, it's like you have a really fine-tuned system. It's kind of the difference between getting in, what's a really fast car? Like a, Let's go with a Camaro. It's sure. like getting a Camaro versus my Prius. Like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. When I put the gas down, my Prius is going to sort of steadily go up. But when I put the gas down the same amount on the camera, I'm probably going to jump forward. So is that kind of related to, I don't know if, if you're familiar with this, but I've seen a couple things, you know, a book and things about uh, this theory of highly sensitive people. 
Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so and, that's kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, and I don't know if it's true for every single person injured. Of course not, because you also see injury is highly correlated with lots of trauma. N not in all cases, though. So, but I just, usually that's what I, one of the first things I assume, and I treat it that way largely because um, the skill set that people are going to need to acquire as they move past it, um, if they do, is th it's the same no matter what. Okay, so if that is somebody's coping mechanism, not in a negative way, just that's the way that they are responding to things, why is that a bad thing? Obviously, we would look at something and say if it involves harming, then it's negative. But what are the, I guess, why is that not a good, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, right. So, I mean, first of all, I kind of I don't do good and bad. It's just it, it's on a continuum and somebody can decide they really want to live with that. It, I think, though, Really, there's people are shortchanging themselves um, if they if they want to do the quick and easy rate, route all the time because uh, you just that isn't going to always work. First of all, so so there's multiple like why not use this for the whole rest of life? Well, one is that bodies tend to habituate, and it, it can for people who use self injury regularly, it can take more over time and deeper over time to get the same effect because there also looks like there's um, engagement of the endogenous opioid system, which is like, you know, that chemical factory we all carry around inside ourselves that, that releases whole, uh, chemicals inside of us to give us feelings. So with repeated overstimulation of that system, we need more over time to have the same effect and people can walk around the world with a more muted perception of the world if they're constantly triggering that system. So that, that's not good. And then the other thing is, um, it, it, and so then there's also, related to that, there's the possibility of doing unintended damage, including potentially death. And I've talked to a whole boatload of people. And in our studies, it's almost 30% of people say they've injured themselves more severely than they intended. And in that, by that, I mean they knew they probably should have gone in and got stitches. Some of them do, some of them don't, but it's really bad. Um, and those kinds of scenarios mean you could bleed out when you didn't intend to do that. That's not good. Sure. But that would be like a serious unintended consequence that would have like life or death consequences. So be good not to go there. Right. And then the third thing is that, uh, and this is the one that really, it was when I was sitting in a car with that young woman I told you about at the beginning who was sort of started this journey for me who was 15 at the time, well, she was now, she was like 27 or 6 or something, and I was sitting in the car with her a few years ago, and I was asking her about that time in her life, and she was saying that of all of the things that she had engaged in to help her deal with life at that point, so it was drugs, eating disorders, like lots of stuff, the self-injury was the one she regretted the most, because now she was out of college, and she had really discovered a passion for working with older people, and she was working in a, in a, a a geriatrics care center and she went to work every day and no matter what the weather was she always wore long sleeves because she had scars all over her body and she didn't want them to ask her about them because she wasn't sure how to explain this and she was very concerned her her boss would see it and worry that she was unstable and not mm -hmm. allow her to do the work she really loved to do um, and she couldn't, just like everything else she could sort of put behind her or it would be her choice about whether or not to disclose it or not. Uh, but this was different because it basically speaks for her. So it's something that every time she goes to a party, every time she goes out, every time she goes for a job interview, she has to kind of think about. And I really honestly hadn't really quite thought about it until that 
moment in that way. Like, yeah, that's that would be a tough one, right? Yeah. So if if I'm a parent or if I'm a, a youth pastor or somebody that works with people and I notice somebody who is always wearing long sleeves or maybe even catch a, a glance of some scars or things like that, what what should my response be to that? Mm, well, it's really, you know, there is no rule. So I think some of it is, I always tell people to sort of check in and what, what really feels the most honoring in that moment, given what you know. If it's somebody, so first of all, the context matters. If it's a young person and the scars are fairly fresh and, um, and I know this person a little bit or I know a little bit about their family and I feel like they really, they may or may not have support, they may or may not have therapy, then I would probably say, hey, I'm noticing that you have some wounds there. Are you, are you injuring yourself? Are you having feelings that, that cause you to want to self-injure? Just I would bring it up in a soft way but a direct way. Um, and then I would sort of honor what they tell me. So they may very well say, no, no, my cat scratched me or sort of something. And then I would probably, if it were me, say, so I understand, you know, I understand you may not want to talk about having hard feelings or self-injuring, but just know that I'm here and I want to talk. Yeah. Um, the other thing I know when people self-injure is they, they may be suicidal at that point. They very well may be, but self-injury is really about feeling better. It's not about... Um, Suicide and people who self-injure are often actively coping at least for that moment for that day and So I usually don't uh, get really too alarmist. I, I flag them in my head. I watch I approach I create as much space to speak as possible if I worry that they're that they're really suicidal Then I'll take extra steps to intervene um, I may very well engage with parent. I think that's that's one of the things we've learned I think that as a group of scholars we hadn't we hadn't really known how critical parents are but they're really really important in the recovery process even if they've had something to do with the onset and maintenance of self-injury hmm. so I'd like thinking about how do I want to approach this but I'd be starting to think about a whole systems approach what do I know about the parents what do I know about whether this kid has other adult supports I might bypass a lot of direct questions about self-injury and ask um, it, start asking questions about um, how they if they have strong feelings and if they have someone to talk to the, uh, to about these feelings and kind of start sussing out what are the what are the support systems they have in place and are they using them? So the family as a support system, as well as friends and community and things like that. And therapist, yeah, if they've got a therapist. I mean, most people who who do a lot of injury are probably going to need to do some formal therapy. That typically the way it goes it's not always the way it goes um, but often they're gonna need some formal guidance about how to understand what's happening for them how to get below the, the surface and start thinking in a fairly clear way about the contributors as well as figuring out the triggers and how to how to manage the triggers and and there's some really specific techniques that therapists can teach to help them resist the urge and that kind of thing. That's a little more specialized knowledge that often comes from therapy. So I'm sure that it varies from person to person, situation to situation. But in the beginning, I'm assuming after listening to this much of the conversation that self-harm is not an automatic 
cause for somebody to be hospitalized? Yeah, no, truly. That's a good thing. Thank you. Yeah. So we, we do a lot of work trying to help schools separate their suicide and their non-suicidal self-injury uh, protocols and other in institutions because really in a lot of cases responding to non-suicidal self-injury with a suicide protocol can be make things worse for a whole variety of reasons but it's also truly not warranted in a lot of cases so um, you know it's, it sort of depends on how it, the knowledge and the comfort level of the person who encounters it and how skilled they are uh, at, at doing these kinds of assessments but if I were in a system and I didn't know a lot about self-injury, but I knew that it wasn't suicide and I knew that it probably needed to be directly, if the, the kid needed a connection with somebody and there needed to be some discussion of it, I would probably find the person in my system who's either, I know is supposed to do that, like a school counselor um, or somebody that I know has that kind of skill. I would want them to connect with, um, I would want them to do a suicide assessment. So if, if I have someone in my life who's injuring one of, you know, I'm in a flag, we do need to do a suicide assessment because it's not uncommon for people who are non-self, who are using NSSI to also be, have some suicide ideation or to have suicidal ideation or, or um, even plans or even action later because they both share this, this, um, they both share fertile soil for distress, right? So somebody who's injuring is telling me they are they experience stress or distress in pretty in big ways and um, and that they may it may become too overwhelming for them to to manage or to want to manage anymore and suicide may become an option and that'll be the case in thirty five to forty percent of the cases that suicidality is is entertained hmm. so it is a risk factor and I do want someone like I want someone in my system to be able to to ask about that, or I want to be able to ask about that, um, and then I want to have, and then if they say, yeah, I'm suicidal, or last night, I, you know, I was thinking about it, or whatever, then the suicide protocols would probably be, be something we would have to entertain. Other than that, though, usually non-suicidal self-injury tells me that somebody who feels strongly, has a lot of emotion, doesn't quite know how to, to manage it, and is coping in this way, they're coping. So I'm not going to, all the alarm bells aren't going to go off. I'm not going to get the ambulance. There. Not, you know, we don't, there's nothing happening that requires immediate intervention. It does require us as a system to think more about how do we really create a safety net around this person? How do we invite them to, to connect and to share feelings and understand more about themselves? How do I get them connected to a therapist if they don't have one? How do I engage a family in a productive way? So there's all sorts of other thought processes sort of go on. This is fantastic and so needed for the people like me who are out there, you know, seeing the the kid, the student, the whoever uh, with scars or with, the, you know, the long sleeves and, and they're, you know, acting like something must be wrong. And it's so good for me to not immediately jump into, oh my gosh, they want to kill themselves. You know, this is, it's, it's just so good. I think Oh, Gosh, education is the greatest thing. So for for what this show is, Robert, you know, for the youth pastors who do listen to this, uh, I'm I'm so thankful for this, Dr. Whitlock. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. So my last question, I guess we can kind of wrap up, but my last question is on kind of the front end, like prevention side of things. Would you recommend uh, youth pastors or whoever? 
talk about self-injury, right? We see sometimes, or a lot of times with mental health, the more that people are talking about it, the less people feel stigmatized and ashamed. Would you recommend that type of thing? Or what are some practical steps kind of on the front side to ensure, hey, people feel comfortable talking about these type things or, you know, feel comfortable approaching me if they're needing some coping mechanisms? What would you recommend? Um, yeah, it's a great question. And I, and I would say that it's helpful it's a couple of things are helpful to keep in mind. One is that every human being on the planet has ways of coping with, with uncomfortable feelings because it's just part of the human experience that we have them. And sometimes they're really intense or they feel intense. And so it's really helpful for young people and everybody to know that this isn't unusual in that way. Like it's, it's a coping mechanism in the same way that I know that right outside my door, there's a, there's a little bowl of chocolate that someone keeps on their desk and there's coffee downstairs. And if I'm feeling a little or whatever, that's where I can go or I might go. Um, so it's part of it's part of a suite of things that people do to self-regulate, and and in that way, it's kind of normative. Self-injury itself isn't normative, but it can be understood as a coping mechanism. Um, th so there's that, and then um, the other. Th so, so I would talk about it as that. So if I'm going to do education with people, I'd say there's lots of things that that people do. And there's, here's some examples, and we can talk about a variety of examples, and self-injury can be included as, as one of those examples. Yeah, and I would avoid probably talking about really lots and lots of detail about self-injury, but I would engage the kids in a conversation about what they've noticed among their friends, and, and then, uh, or in themselves, how do they know when they're starting to feel stressed out, what are the things they tend to do, and then, and then where, what can they, what do they need to know to get help? when they're feeling really stressed or when they notice that a friend is doing things that really concern them. Because truly one of the, the biggest issues for peers is, first of all, they're more likely to notice or know than anybody. They're, they're the top, they're the front line truly, because they see or are told. Um, and they are, uh, it's you know wonderful for all of us to have friends and to share with friends as, as kids we need that, but they're really the least well positioned to do anything about it. So peers, and, and it's a big like gift to have. <laughs> you, you want your friends to confide in you, but that kind of stuff is, is big and scary and you don't know what to do with it. So helping, helping like, the youth in a group recognize signs and then know how, how to um, respond in terms of being compassionate and help, you know, supportive, and then also how to get help from the adults in the system and that it's okay to get help from the adults in the system and that you're not betraying a friend, even if it feels like you are in the short term, even if they tell you you are in the short term. Those are the three things that I always focus on. So what to notice, how to respond in the immediate, in a, in a kind way, and then how to get help and that it's really, really important to get help and support, even if there's blowback. Mm, that's so I tell them usually, you know, we've done tons of interviews now with people who injure, and every, there's a really pretty significant number of people who said that their friend outed them to either their parent or to another adult in their school or somewhere, um, and they also, a lot of them say that when that happened, they were really, really mad at their friend, or they stopped being friends with their friends, but every single one of them said they were glad in the long run, like 100%, it's really striking, so I always tell that to the youth too. <laughs> yeah. In the long run, it's the right thing to do, even if it feels really like you're, you're, you're ratting your friend out. Mm, that's so good. Well, 
We want to thank you for being here with us today. If you, listener, want to connect with Dr. Whitlock, you can check her out on Twitter at Janice Whitlock, or uh, you can learn more about the Cornell Research Program on Self-Injury and Recovery. We'll have the link to that in the show notes. Uh, if you want to connect with Steve, you can find him at gracesmessy.com or on social media at I am Steve Austin. You can find me at robert-vore.com or on social media at Robert Vore. Dr. Whitlock, do you have any closing thoughts for us today? I, no, no closing thoughts. Just thank you very much for the work that you do and the care that you clearly show and uh, that those of you who will be listening to the show really show for young people. It gives me hope. Absolutely. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for being here. Yep, have a great day. You, you too. too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at cxmhpodcast at gmail.com. A final note, if you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.